Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. Yeah. Let them come. There is one dwarf yet in Moria who still draws props. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. This time around, we are looking at the uh, delightful Bon Mott that is Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, which is the um, first film in a trilogy, live action, directed by Peter Jackson based on the books uh, from the mid-50s by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shergy. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, young hobbits. You shall not pass wind. I am rather fond of having half a banana for breakfast followed by an orange. It has the juice, the vitamin C, the pulp. It'll just clean you right out. Is that a Mel Brooks bit? Th- that is my impression of... My, that is my impression of Ian McKellen doing Gandalf, doing an impression of Mel Brooks, talking about how good oranges are. I see. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty funny. Um, which, so, which had this film series come out 20, maybe even 10 years earlier, we would have gotten a Mel Brooks parody of it. Right. I mean, I, I, I look at the... I mean, I have a master list of all the movies we've covered on, on this show, both in the original uh, sequel cast incarnation and now a sequel cast too. And it's really shocking we, we never did these films, so I'm glad we're, we're getting to it. It, it was, it was all so often discussed, and I, th- I think part of the reason we, we haven't done it until now was just simply the notion that, well, these, these films are too big. This, this is a film series that everyone's probably seen and has already made up their mind about, and what, what can we bring to it with, with, our, with our commentary and criticism? And then we just decided, what the hell? This is, this is one of the best franchises, film franchises ever. We just got to do it. Right, and uh, part of me also, I think, might have waited to pull the trigger on it uh, until the Hobbit movies were done, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, but uh, anyhow... I mean, this original Lord of the Rings, uh, Fellowship of the Ring film, is 15 years old. Sorry, 16 years old. <laughs> yeah, well, well, but do you remember how long we waited uh, for this movie series? Do, do, you, do you remember what it was like when, when it was announced that Peter Jackson was going to do this? Well, I mean, even before then, um, when I was in high school... The rumor was uh, Sean Connery was going to be Gandalf. Oh yeah, um, I, I remember but those. I mean, yeah, uh, but I mean, you're right. The, uh, this movie uh, had people tried to make this into a live action epic since uh, I think even the the '60s, the earliest uh, in, in my pre search, uh, as you put it. Um, the only thing that that came to mind was the or the earliest one i mean is um the beatles wanted to make a film of lord of the rings and uh, make it a musical 
which wow, what a, what a world that would have been. Right. I think the best comment I heard on that was, uh, well, that would have made a good album at least, which is probably true. Um, and then John the one... Borman tried to make this yes, in the 70s, sure. but couldn't couldn't get it pulled off. But the resources he would have put into this ended up going into uh, Zardoz and Excalibur. Yeah, and um, his script was a quite liberal interpretation. It had, I think it had like Frodo um, having sex with Arwen or something. Like it had all this weird oh, wow. 70s uh, sexual content. It would have been very surreal. But that got really close to happening. But you're right. He took those resources, did Excalibur. Um, what I think is really funny is I believe it's Mark Ordesky, who's one of the executive producers on this. Just a few years before um, Lord of the Rings, he was an executive producer on another fantasy film from New Line Cinema, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, which can I, can I say that deserves I, either a sequel commentary or we need to cover that franchise because now there's three films in it. Four, um, if you count the animated Dragonlance movie. Don't, oh, gee, that animated Dragonlance movie, my friend bought that on day one because he's read the books like 50 times, and um, he was so mad he threw the case across the room oh, wow. when, when, when he watched it because uh, he, he went to a convention where the producers were, were saying oh, how faithful it is, and the, the animation on it just looks cheap. But, oh, I mean, we're not talking about that. But, yes, we, we'll certainly talk about those. At some point on the show, because um, they're they're absolutely worthy of uh, discussion. But yeah, so Lord of the Rings. Um, when did you first like read the book, and then when did you first watch uh, this first movie, Fellowship of the Ring? Well, I read I read the book in uh, in uh, nineteen ninety six, as I recall, because I had re I had I had read The Hobbit and I had had reread The Hobbit at the beginning of that summer and had got into Lord of the Rings at the end of that summer. And that was part of the mythical 1996 uh, cross-country three-month-long family road trip that I was a part of. So I had a lot of time to read. Uh, and it's, it's, it, was, it was one of those things where at, at, at the time, it, it's strange because with, with Tolkien's work, overall, like I prefer the novel of The Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I, yeah, and I yet agree. In, in film, yeah. I'd like the Lord of the Rings trilogy more than I like The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, as a little kid, uh, and I think I mentioned this back in our Lord of the Rings show like five years ago on the original sequel cast show, uh, and I've had listeners ask me, Matt, when are those episodes going to be available? I'm, I'm looking into something where I think they'd be available for some sort of nominal fee, but um, and that might come towards... Um, you know the 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 winter months, so we'll see. That's in the work, certainly. Uh, anyhow, uh, my father read my sister and I The Hobbit out loud, which took over a year. Cool. And then, of course, Lord of the Rings comes next. And because life happens, uh, we never got past the middle of the two towers. So I actually read the whole series for the very first time all by myself. Um, right before the movie came out. I, I think at a comic convention, I got a free copy, a Dragon Con, in fact, I got a free copy of a not very well-bound, um, almost like trade paperback size version of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Hmm. And it had a sort of lame photo of uh, Elijah Wood as Frodo on the cover. But, um, was, and was it all one volume comprising the complete trilogy? Yes, exactly, yeah, one volume with the appendices at the end. I want to see what that looked like. That must have been huge. It, it was huge, and the binding wasn't great, but um, even more disappointingly recently, as a 
gift, and it was a good idea. My dad got me this sort of leather-bound um, little set from Costco of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Cool. The problem is, uh, and the binding and the page quality is good on those, uh, each one is you know smaller than a paperback, and the, the text size is microscopic. So dif- difficult to read, then. Yes, it looks nice on the shelf, and but it's almost like how they published books in the late 1800s. Very <laughs> tiny print, and uh, and so forth. But um, we're sort of getting off topic here. But uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, Fellowship of the Ring was uh, a big deal for my sister and I to see because we, we love the books. And uh, that's when I really, um, you know, before that, uh, in the mid-90s when uh, my family got the internet, you know, it was pretty early in the process. It was through an internet provider called Mindspring. Um, now they're called something else, which I can't think what their name is. I remember Mindspring. Yeah, they were based out of Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, I, I that's where my obsession with movies began, with uh, websites like Ain't It Cool or Dark Horizons or uh, Nuke.com used to be one, uh, and then later <laughs> they became uh, OG, not um, GameSpy, I think, is what they became, hmm. but, but, but anyhow... Yeah, I've been following these movies for a while, and it was seemed like forever when it finally came out. Uh, the uh, behind-the-scenes on the extended versions of these movies are, are extensive. And what's fascinating is, originally, the, the Weinsteins, uh, they're still credited as executive producers because of their deal, but they were going to make the Lord of the Rings trilogy as two films, not three. And um, and then when they you know took it over to New Line, the first thing the executives at New Line, who I think was the Ordesky, the big fantasy guy, said is, "Why are you pitching this as two movies? It should be three. And Peter Jackson's response was, "Thank God," because <laughs> uh, they, they scripted a version that w- would have split this into two films, but it would have been uh, super super compressed. Yeah, and just the the style of Tolkien, Tolkien storytelling. It really benefits when you can just take your time with it. Although, that being said, this was probably the dawn of super long movies, because the original release cut yeah, of Fellowship yeah. of the Ring, mm-hmm. it's just shy of three full hours, and then the extended cut is just shy of four full hours. Four. Exactly. And, um, and, and, that's and some been, of that is That's the been credits. a mixed blessing, uh, this age of long movies. I think we're starting to see that trend reverse, and I prefer shorter movies myself, and uh, I, I don't mind a long movie as long as there's a reason to being long, but sometimes it, it just feels like there's there's a lot of padding in there or the pacing is not good, and I, I do wish they would have it where if a movie is maybe two hours and 45 minutes, they should throw an intermission in there. Yeah, I could see some, I could see a benefit to that. Because as you get older, you have to go to the bathroom more, and not only that, it, it bumps up concession sales, but... Um, I, I don't know. Like, it, that just strikes me as odd. Like, three hours is a long time to ask someone to sit in a theater. <laughs> I think Return of the King is almost like three and a half hours, even the theatrical version. Like, it's quite quite lengthy. Yeah, I've always wondered um, if – because apparently that hasn't hurt box office at all. Because you think longer movies, fewer screenings in a day, fewer ticket sales. But that doesn't seem to, to affect the, the movies that, that make a lot of bank. It, well, I, I think also if it if it's going to be a, a movie like like Transformers is three hours, which is ridiculous for that kind of a movie in my opinion. But um, it's going to be on a lot of different screens. I think so. It sort of cancels each other out. But if it's a let's say if it's it's if it's an Indian film that's an epic about milkshakes or something, um, and it's three hours long, I think that would 
affect its gross. It's not going to be playing on more than one screen, most likely. And I will say this about director Peter Jackson. He yeah. does seem to have a sense about how long a film needs to be, and also he has a, a natural sense of of when a film is too long. Because one thing, because looking back on the his Lord of the Rings trilogy and his Hobbit trilogy, every time I saw these in the theaters there would always come a point where I would go, oh, wow, this movie is really long. And then it would end within five minutes of me having that thought, for, for which I was very thankful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, especially in these Lord of the Rings films instead of the Hobbit films, which we'll talk about at some later date. It, it, he does a good job with the pacing. Um, the, the extra material in the extended cut of Fellowship of the Raiden I think is mainly extraneous, but I like all the extra Hobbiton stuff. Like it's just sort of world building, and Hobbiton's a cool place. I could I could see a whole movie set in a Hobbiton where nothing happens, and I'd still like it. Well, that that was something that was so so nice and refreshing about this film, because uh, because I mean a lot a lot of people, and I think rightfully so, were waiting for this movie to be a complete disaster. Uh, I I was very fortunate that I had been introduced to Peter Jackson uh, before I saw Lord of the Rings through both The Frighteners uh, mm. and his uh, film Heavenly Creatures, which is an amazing film. Uh, I have yet to see Heavenly Creatures, and I've heard nothing but great it, things about it. It, it but is I was, well worth it. Right, I was familiar with Peter Jackson from. The Frighteners, um, which I'd love to revisit. I haven't seen that since... I bought it on Blu-ray. I just haven't seen it since it came out on videotape. And um, as a gag, because uh, one of my friends, Darren... Uh, hey, Darren, if you're listening. Um, he knows my sort of twisted sense of humor, and he says, Matt, you'll love this movie, and he got me a bootleg of Meet the Feebles. Oh, yeah. Which is uh, a very weird sort of sexual... It's like Tarantino meets the Muppets. Well, it's naked gun. It's it's very, um, it's a it's a Hollywood Babylon puppet show <laughs> farce. Yeah, but then it actually has characters with arcs in it. Like it's quite strange. Like it it's not just nonsense for the sake of nonsense. Well, that's I think Peter Jackson's strength as a director is no matter what material he's working with, whether he's adapting someone else's work or it's one of his own wild hair ideas, he takes it seriously and does everything he can to. To, to have the best possible execution. And that really shows in the introduction to this film, just the, the fact that he takes the time to show us a Hobbiton that real people could inhabit, that feels like a real functioning community. So I believe The Frighteners was a New Line cinema film, is that right? I believe it was, yes. Okay, and, and before that, he was trying to you know, make his way into Hollywood, because that's how you make the, the, big, uh, the big money pictures. Uh, and not only that, he loves movies, right? And movies of a certain kind are, are you associate with Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And um, he actually had a script uh, written for Nightmare in Elm Street 6. And uh, do you know about this? No, I hadn't heard about this. Oh, yeah. And uh, the concept of it I thought was quite uh, brilliant. And they decided not to go with it and instead went with the camp fest. Uh, that's uh, Nightmare in Elm Street um, 6, Freddy's Dead. Is that that one? That's, so. That sounds right, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'm it, behind on that it, series. It's the one with the 3D Freddy snake. So anyhow... Peter Jackson's original concept for Nightmare on Elm Street was that um, very meta. It's that the, the public or the people in Elm Street thought that Freddy Krueger was lame. And because of that, because uh, they didn't believe in him and his frightening powers, um, kids would, would get together, take the, the sleeping pills so they'd all fall asleep at the same time and just kick the shit out of Freddy Krueger <laughs> in their nightmares. 
because people didn't believe him as a frightening entity, he was like a uh, he was just you know, a like dumb a mangy boogeyman. puppy. Yeah, a dumb boogeyman, a punching bag. And then and then something happens, and and he uh, you know starts uh, slicing people up as he does. And I thought, wow, what a clever idea! That sounds much better than a few of the nightmare sequels uh, <laughs> we, we've gotten over the years. So he he's wanted to do stuff with the uh, with New Line, and eventually he got to do Frighteners. He got close to doing King Kong in the '90s, but then Mighty Joe Yun was a financial disappointment, so Universal punted on that. And uh, had he done King Kong, we might have not seen Lord of the Rings, or at least not by him. So yeah, back to this specific film. I I know we're sort of going all over the place. Fellowship of the Ring, in short, what this movie is about is a an old man's uh, nephew takes a piece of jewelry through the woods, <laughs> meets up with some people of different races, uh, they go into um, some other woods, and then a, a few of them sneak away in a canoe. It's it's the world's greatest field trip. <laughs> Well, there is a lot of walking in the books, is there not? I mean, well, no, that well, that's a big part of the books. The books do at times read uh, like travelogues, occasionally interrupted mm-hmm. yeah. by Tom Bombadil. I, I I wish they would have had Tom Bombadil, man. I, like, I don't know, like in, I <laughs> I don't miss his absence in in the the theatrical cut. Like as as we talked about when we reviewed the the animated uh, Lord of the Rings. Tom Bombadil is kind of dead weight in that novel. He is, and the it, the, the book um, takes a bit to get going. I mean, it, I think you also watched the extended version of this movie. Is that right? Uh, I I have. I know I've seen like three different versions. Right. There was and, an original um, extended cut, but then I believe there was a Blu-ray extended cut. It, it, there might be very minor differences on on the Blu-ray, perhaps with some of the effects. I'm not entirely sure, but with the um, uh, anyhow, you know, by the time the uh, the Black Riders show up and they're in the wood, or no, sorry, by the time they get to uh, what Bree and the Prancing Pony, I believe, um, it's forty five minutes. <laughs> so uh, it, it's uh, you had once described, I think, um, when we covered the Hitchhikers BBC series as, as being kind of like a leisurely Sunday stroll. Yes, yes, I and, do. And, and 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 that's what Fellowship is, and I I also think of the Austin Powers character Basil Exposition, played by Michael York. Because it, if you read any you know fantasy series of books, whether it's Game of Thrones or uh, Circle of Time, or what the Magician, the Remedy Feist uh, series, um, the first book is world building, and usually not much happens. Shannara, another one, you know what I mean, and and that's Fellowship. It's not the most uh, plot driven. It's sort of like a lazy stroll through the woods like oh look at this tree let's sit here and start picking at the bark well, well beyond beyond that this first film overall is very low stakes until the very very end um you right know, the, the real the real horror the real danger doesn't kick in until until the second film and it, it's really kind of the, the same way the same way as a novel as the novel and i think in part that's because this is this is the book that's trying to accelerate from the pace set by the hobbit Mm, mm-hmm. But I don't think, but I don't think that's bad. I mean, I still fi- find this movie, you know, really enjoyable, and I do like. I like that it's a fantasy movie that is not ponderous or portentous. I like that it that yeah, yeah. that it starts from a very gentle place, and that gentleness kind of continues through this film. 
which, which is one of the things I like. One of the, the highlights of this com- entire series for me is the friendship uh, between uh, Frodo and Sam. Do you think in the in the this film trilogy there's uh, homosexual uh, overtones? Well, we we actually we talked about this when we did uh, the the animated we? Okay. Uh, trilogy, yeah. and I think I don't I don't sense that the characters are homosexual. I think I think what it is is that emotional intimacy is portrayed so rarely on film, and especially in epic yeah, fantasy right. films, that there's this there's this part of you that just wants to jump straight to oh well they have to be gay but but no that's the way you behave with your closest friends and there doesn't have to be a romantic attachment and there. sure i mean you can love someone and not have it be romantic attachment right and but I th- and also I think that's, that's, it's very raw the emotions they're expressing towards each other and, and i think i think that's part of the problem is because there there is there is there are many different kinds of love and the love that exists between friends is different from the love that exists between you know two physical lovers, which is very often different from the love someone might have uh, for their spouse. Uh, and I, th- I think movies movies tend to only focus on the uh, on the big romantic love or the sexual love. Right. Uh, fr- friendship, just the love that exists between friends, uh, is so often ignored in film. And this is one of the rare exceptions. Uh, right, um, especially between men. I, I also think... I went to a talk at Dragon Con, one of the many times I've been to that show, and I wish I could have gone to it this year. It just wasn't in the cards. But, um, oh, I think the, the guy's name is, last name is Shippy. Um, he's, he's an academic, uh, a, a British man who wrote a book saying J.R.R. Tolkien is the best author of the 20th century, which I think is stretching it a bit. Mm. But a- anyhow, his argument was saying that the relationship between Frodo and Sam was inspired with... Um, J.R.R. Tolkien's time as a veteran in World War One, and the relationship between soldiers in the foxhole. I I could see that, uh, although at the same time, when like the the whole foxhole thing, that that's a friendship that's born out of strife and and conflict and kind of like duress, because you're all you're you're often forced into that situation with people that you didn't know before. But you know, Fro- Frodo and Sam do know each other starting out. Now their friendship deepens throughout this throughout this trilogy. Uh, and I, I think that's I think that's a valid comparison because they are they do go through some hell and it only brings them closer together. Right. Perhaps he's referring to you know further in the story, which we'll get to in the next few weeks as we talk about the other films. Um. So we talked. Let's talk about the acting a bit. I think before going through the story here, there's a, this is quite a wonderful cast, and yet in in some of the roles you have Americans doing British accents, some of which are kind of dodgy. Um, you have Elijah Wood as Frodo who unfortunately is a very passive character. Well, start, starting out, yes. He doesn't really find his legs as a protagonist until later on. And Elijah Wood, he, he certainly uh, looks the part. I think his, his quasi-Marty Feldman bug eyes helps <laughs> with his... With, you know, makes him look a bit... Um, makes him look distinct. Well, when he gets out of Hobbiton and looks upon something strange in wonder, it really does uh-huh. look like an overwhelming sense of awe is overtaking him. Yeah, he has a great set of peepers, which helps with the role. Um, but the really underrated part is... Um, uh, why can't I think of his name? My internet's being screwy. Ian uh, McKellen, Vigo Mortensen, no, Sean Astin? Sean Astin, thank you. Oh, as yes. uh, Sean Astin as Samwise Gamgee, who I think is in some ways is the real hero of the trilogy. He His accent, I, I to my ears, is better than Elijah Wood's. And it has a lot of heart to it. Well, he's... 
actually, he, here's a good, is he an American actor? Or, or is, is he British? Sean Astin, he, his, his father's American because his father was Gomez on Adam's Oh, that's family. right. Um, He's that, that Astin. Oh, yeah, you have to be. Yeah, okay, so his, I find his accent so charming. I, yeah. It did not occur to me until now that he is the American Sean Astin. Which I, I mean, guess is the you only know, I, Sean Astin. I think at the time they made this film, he was most famous as a kid for The Goonies, playing the lead, but also um, in the late 90s, he was in Rudy, which is a show they would show in public, a movie they'd show in public school like once every month. Oh, at least with mine. was that the, about the, the kid who wanted movie. to play football? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a runt, and yeah. Uh, good, good movie. He's very good in it, but that, that's, you know, probably his one of his more well-known roles, aside from Lord of the Rings, of course. But and, he just, uh, yeah, he, there's there's just this pleasant sort of archerness about him. Oh, Master Frodo, we gotta carry on. I I really do like it. That won't get the ferrets I, out for our British listeners. <laughs> um, what do you feel about Marion Pippin, played by uh, what Dama? Uh, sorry, if you could fill these gaps for me, my internet isn't working aside from the Skype call. Well, Billy um, Boyd played Pippin. Okay. Billy Boyd is Pippin, and who played Mary? Uh, let me see, Mary Brandy Buck. Let me check it's my Dominic uh, Dominic something. Dominic Monahan. There you go. That's what I was thinking. And he was later on Lost and so forth. Um, I I think they're a lot of fun. As as my sister has put it, watching this movie a few times, I just want to hang out and have lunch with these guys. Well, and smoke some pipe weed. They like they're they are a gentle comic relief. They're never grating. They never do shtick. But they they add they add some nice levity uh, to this. But right. they're, but they're not goofball sidekicks, which is so refreshing. This movie manages to avoid everything that makes so many other fantasy films unbearable. And and you know, speaking about um, let's let's talk about a few more of the actors, and we'll go into talking about the actual plot of the show. And this will be a, a longer episode than usual, listeners. But this is a very important film and even piece of literature. So. This is this is a big one. Crack open a crack open a sandwich and keep listening. <laughs> yeah. How do you crack open a sandwich? It's a terrible metaphor. There, you can get canned sandwiches. I don't know why, but you can get them. I've seen canned hamburgers. Um, yeah, from the nineties. Uh, anyhow, tennis so ball we, tubes we the, is where the real future of food distribution is. Not fizzy lifting drinks. No, um, no. So. Yeah, we could do Willy Wonka on this show. That's a good idea. Um, there are three versions of that now, yeah. Three? Uh, do you mean the, the cartoon? It, let's save yeah, it okay, for we'll, the we'll post-show. Uh, Very we'll, good. We'll do that as a stinger on the end. We'll talk about the three Willy Wonkas. Very good. Okay. Wonkas. Not to get two. Oh, I got to ask. So, how, how do you feel about Ian McKellen? Yeah, yeah, I was going to get to that. Um... Funnily enough, Ian McKellen almost didn't want to do this film. He is, was sort of tied up doing the X-Men movies, and it was a bit of a scheduling goofiness to get him in this. And he... Uh, I, I like him as Gandalf the Grey. I like him less so as Gandalf the White. I like... you know He's sort of like the hippie wizard. Um, and his Shakespearean uh, background, you know, doing the boards uh, over in London, is gives a lot of gravitas to the character... What I think is more interesting is Christopher Lee, who was personal friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, wanted to play Gandalf, and Peter Jackson said, absolutely not, <laughs> because Christopher Lee has played villains for, um, is most well-known for playing villains throughout his career. 
and, and yet, I think Christopher Lee probably would have made a very good Gandalf. I, I think he, he's yeah, one of yeah. those people... I, I seeing seeing him as a hero would have would have been very refreshing, and I think would have given some interesting life to the role. Now, that being said, I'm well, very and, pleased with Ian McKellen. He is Gandalf, as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. He is. I love yeah. I love that bit early on where it's where it's him and Bilbo just sitting sitting on a porch smoking, and you know Bilbo does some smoke <laughs> ring tricks, and then Gandalf does a smoke ring trick that creates a yes. sailing ship out of smoke. There's that that gentle, goes through. It goes through Bilbo's reins, I think, and pops them or yeah. something. Yeah, it's <laughs> there's something very that, charming about that, and how like, and how Bilbo's not really humiliated. It's just, oh, Gandalf. Yeah, it's a uh, it, it's very charming, very easy. He looks. Um, oh, uh, who 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 are the paintings they referred to when they did the film? Uh, he was the, also a, a consultant. The Hildebrandt brothers. For uh, no, uh, Alan something. Uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure who you're referencing. Okay, uh, it d- doesn't matter, but they used uh, a famous... Um, there's, there's been many illustrated versions of Lord of the Rings, but they used uh, one of the more famous... Alan Lee, perhaps, um, oh. one of the more famous ones for reference. And Gandalf looks exactly how you expect Gandalf to look. Like, he, they didn't make him have a mohawk or have sunglasses or... <laughs> that you know, that would have been a very different movie. Wouldn't it? Maybe if they would have done it in the 90s, they would have tried some of that nonsense. But yeah, it's... Um, quite classic how he looks and christopher lee as as saruman is good they they give that character more to do in these films but even then he is a spice he's not like a a gloating villain with long monologues aside i mean this wizard fight might be the most action we see him in um until we get to a deleted sequence that's in the extended return of the king yeah and and it is and it is mostly just like sort of them telekinetically pushing themselves pushing each other around Although, uh, yeah, old man fight. That's another thing I like about this movie. The magic isn't showy. Yeah, un- unlike Harry Potter, right? Where it's about, oh, look at the wonder of the magic spells. There's no it's, lightning, um, there's no sparks, there's just a suggestion of greater forces at work. Even there's a part uh, near the middle of the film where Gandalf, uh, you know, it's sort of like the screen gets dark and his voice gets warped. He's speaking the... the um, the high the dark, the high um, speech, or the dark speech. The high speech, the dark speech. Yeah, yeah. and uh, pretty cool. Like it's, it. You're right. I like the suggestion, and maybe that's for budgetary reasons. The most showy spell we get is, um, in this film, is is the river crossing where the uh, the waves turn into horses. But even that's fairly abstract. Yeah, it's just it's just uh, to kind of give give a little a little flair. Uh, to the scene, although I there one, th- when this movie came out, there was a great piece of satirical writing. I, I sadly was not able to find it as part of my pre-search for the show. Hopefully, I'll be able to properly attribute it in a future episode. But there was a, a piece of satirical writing uh, done online for a humor website, and it was excerpts from the novelization of The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> And, oh, that's very funny. And it was yeah. really great. And what they, what they did is they took two memorable scenes that are reflected in the trailer for the movie, but also <laughs> are memorable from the book, and like what those chapters would look like in a cheesy novelization of a blockbuster. And yes, the, yeah. the novelization of the scene where where this magic brings the water to life and and you know to to f- flood people down the river is just so great. She channeled her power and brought forth tele uh, uh, brought forth hydrokinesis. The ability to manipulate water <laughs> and there's no subtext to effort to anything and everything is over described it's so good 
Oh, that, uh, love that purple prose. Um, but the 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 not making the magic look too impressive though is to this film's benefit, uh, because mm-hmm. the truly fantastical stuff it, it just by contrast hits you so much harder. Like when the Balrog shows up, right, which is a great design. Um, let's go on a little bit more of the cast, oh, and yes. we'll go through the plot from the beginning. Thank you for your patience, dear listeners. Um, so, and if you have um, a few spare dollars in addition to uh, patients, yeah, why, why not make a monthly recurring donation at patreon.com slash sequelcast2. Uh, yes, and uh, I actually, uh, we're gonna t- uh, we are going to talk about it a bit uh, off, uh, off mic, most likely, but uh, I have started to work on the first digital goodie that's going to go in, uh, exclusively out to our Patreon backers. Fantastic. All right, so, um, plug, plug, plug. Uh, about the cast... Um, we got to talk Aragorn. about John Rice Davies. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes, I got a chance to see him speak live about this. Actually. Nice. Uh, John Rice Davies plays Gimli. Um, he did not like doing this movie because of all the prosthetics and makeup. Um, it, it should be mentioned in long shots with the hobbits and the dwarf and Gimli. They were played by um, little people, and John Rice Davies especially is only in close-ups. Like a lot of it's not him in the film, but um, it, it was physically painful for, especially a man of his height and stature to have to be on his knees a lot of the time for perspective reasons. Yeah. Um, but he, he's he's the archety- archetypical um, dwarf. He's fantastic. He, he's a bit of comic <laughs> relief as well, but... He's, he's every first-level dwarf you've ever played with at D&D. And it, doesn't he have the perfect voice for it? I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. No, he does, and like, and, you know, they, they, they think that there are no male, there are no female dwarves because all dwarves have beards. They just assume that dwarves spring up out of the ground. But no, he, he, he really makes the character live and breathe. They, I do feel that they lean too hard on him being comic relief in the later movies, but in in yeah, in the first one though, it, it's not as much. Yeah, they have the right balance. He, but you know, he can be the great honorable leader and can still get some one-liners in, which is which is quite nice. And I love the, the character moment of um, just the design of of that character and the armor and how he looks. You just look at him and you get it. He doesn't even have to speak. And you get the fellowship, and they talk about the rain, and he just runs over with his axe, and he's going to cleave it in two. <laughs> it's such a lovely moment. Which is, um, which is great, because that, that is the kind of thing that does come up. It's like, well, why can't you just destroy the ultimate weapon? Well, some ultimate weapons can't be destroyed, except through crazy means. It's, right. I, I'm reminded a bit of, um, in the, the computer game uh, Dragon Age Origins, the, the genius thing that game does, and of course all RPGs are heavily influenced by Tolkien, whether implicit or not, um, you could be either a noble dwarf or a uh, like a slave dwarf, and based on your, your class and your your race, it uh, the, the first like two hours of the game are different. Mm. And if you are a royal dwarf, it's like a, a dwarvish uh, Game of Thrones, where it's a, a backstabbing underground relationship but if it's a slave you have to fight in a gladiatorial arena wow but it, it's it's very much like the headstrong sort of dwarf uh archetype so that's what i was reminded by in lord of the rings although the um the latter is influenced by the former now what do you think about Liv tyler as arwen yeah i wish it would have been someone else she's okay like 
I get why they cast her. She's she's gorgeous, especially she has the uh, the lips uh, right from her father, Steven Tyler. Right, has an otherworldly quality. <laughs> she, she's not terrible, and and people were expecting her to be unwatchable, and and she's not. She's just fine. Um, I mean, the, the the elf that I think is much better is Hugo Weaving as Elrond. Well, he he comes across same way he did in the Matrix. He come as Agent Smith. Yeah. He comes across as being as being other than human uh, in a very striking way. Right. Originally, David Bowie was lobbying for the part, and uh, oh, they wouldn't wow. even consider him. Um, David Bowie would have been fine, but I, I don't know if it would have stopped people from giggling in the theater, maybe. Um, which isn't David Bowie's fault, but. Well, I mean, it's not. It's not as if he'd be acting like the Goblin King. He'd just be acting like Bowie. That's right. And um, Bowie did play an Elvish King in a TV movie that also starred Martin Short. Um, around this time, perhaps to make up for not being the part of Elrond in this, well, but he was personally very upset by not being cast as Elrond. Was, was that that Merlin miniseries? Uh, no, but it was along those. It was produced by the same company. I can't think of the name of it. Oh. Um. But yeah, it's along those lines. Also, um, we have Aragorn. Is the other part we haven't talked about yet by Viggo Mortensen, and um, he's great. And actually, he's replacing an actor that was cast who then got fired. You know that? No, I did not know that. Who was cast and why was he fired? So, unfortunately, they've never shown footage of this, and sort of like the infamous Eric Stoltz Back to the Future footage, I would love to see <laughs> what this actor's performance was. In the role, they originally cast Stuart Townsend. That's right, Lestat from Queen of the Damned. Really? Yep. Who I think is far too young for that part, or looks young at least. And um, he... I talked to a guy who had friends that worked on the set, and the story that what he was able to confirm is he just wasn't pulling his weight and wasn't taking it seriously uh, and showing up late to the set and sort of being, uh, and, you know, sort of arrogant movie star stuff in this, which they had no place for in this production. And so he got fired. Right. And then Viggo Mortensen was a backup choice who he basically had to take his passport, fly, you know, 36 hours to New Zealand, and then immediately start filming his first day the next day on set. <laughs> like, it was a real, like come to Jesus moment. I don't think they filmed a whole lot with Stuart Townsend. I've never seen pictures of him in character. Uh, I've never seen footage of it. I would love to see it. If anyone knows it, uh, pass it my way. But, um, yeah. Do you like, do you think Vigo is good in this part? I think, I think he is. Oh, another person they considered for the role was Nicholas Cage. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, Nicholas Cage now, I don't think could have done that. Nicholas Cage back then, maybe, uh, only because crazy Nicholas Cage was less of a thing in two thousand one. Right. Um, Nicholas Cage can't be a good actor with the right material. It's just for better or for worse, Nicholas Cage puts in a Nicholas Cage performance, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's bland, and sometimes it's over the top. And you never know what you're going to get. Except that he's um, certainly watchable, in my opinion. Okay, so we, we, we touched on the cast for uh, Fellowship of the Rings. Actually, I do want to... One yeah. last comment about the cast. Um, sure. So Ian Holm 
uh, as course, Bilbo yeah, Baggins. Bilbo. Like he 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 only shows up twice, uh, relatively briefly in this film. But I I I really did I really did like him. He really did come across as kind of a a friendly, cheerful, elderly uncle sort of character. And especially the um, it's a quite good effect sort of later on where he wants Bilbo to give him the ring when they're in Rivendell. And his face morphs into this sort of, you know, golem-looking monster with pointy teeth. It's very, it's very quick, but it's also, it, it also is very frightening because you, you don't expect that in this film. It does no, especially it does in a room you. with a lot of white and gold and soft lighting. It, it's not the environment. It's not like a dark, shadowy cave or something. Yeah, it's it's a shock moment. Um, so Ian Holm has a lot of heart, and also he voiced Frodo, I believe, in a, a famous BBC, like, 12-episode adaptation of Lord of the Rings. Yes, from 1981, which, like, uh, the a lot of that cast was taken from, uh, or was lifted from uh, Bakshi's uh, animated Lord of the Rings. Uh, oh, that's funny. But, he, but yeah, Ian Holmes was in it. And also, I didn't, I didn't realize this, but apparently uh, Sylvester McCoy, who played the seventh incarnation of the Doctor on Doctor Who, was up for this part. Uh, and hmm. like, it wasn't until very late in the process that that Holmes was cast instead of him. But they use McCoy in The Hobbit, did they not? Uh, yes, McCoy does play yeah. Radagast the Brown. Although I am a tremendous fan of Sylvester McCoy, I really would like to have seen what he could have done with this role. Right. Um, I mean, Ian Holm perhaps is most famous um, in the United States for doing it, for the being the robot and alien. Uh, but he's done so much in his career, and he just adds, it's it's good casting. He has a lot of gravitas. Um, Part of me wishes what would Stephen Fry would have been like as Bilbo, but I just I, like Stephen Fry. That, no, but I don't that'd think be too jokey. Yeah, I don't think he's right for the part. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so back to talking about the movie. Uh, the Lord of the Rings um, famously has a large uh, at the end of Return of the King. Like maybe a third of the book is like the appendices with all this backstory stuff, and we open with a lot of. Um, backstory that I'd argue isn't needed because we also rewatch a lot of this stuff in flashback later in the show. Well, I, I think, I think it probably is good to front load this movie with a little bit of information about how important the ring is only because I think it might seem strange that all the characters are obsessing about, about this ring. It would make it seem Mm. like it would, without this intro, the ring just seems like a base MacGuffin. Um, this establishes some stakes, but one thing I love about this intro, a lesser movie would have thrown up uh, some text on the screen or would have had a character yes, say, yeah, my right. mother once told of a prophecy of the olden times. But no, instead, we actually get to see the the war for the ring in, in one of the early ages of Middle Earth and uh, all, the, all the way down to the Dark Lord getting his finger cut off, uh, which is quite nice. You don't uh, normally see produ- dismemberment in a, uh, in no. a PG fantasy film. That's and that comes from Peter Jackson's sort of horror background. Um, when it, it's quite interesting that uh, in production, uh, although we get Galadriel doing the voiceover, they had done different versions with Bilbo doing the voiceover or Gandalf doing the voiceover. And I'm surprised they didn't go with Gandalf. It's a bit strange. It's Galadriel, but on the other hand, elves live a long time. Um, you're not sure who's narrating it anyway. 
Well, do you, do you think the implication is she was there and saw this firsthand? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, quite possibly. Because we, but we do see that. Um, well, who's the elf king? Elrond. Um, Elrond. Yeah. What we do see, Elrond was there. So, hell, it could have been him doing the narration. But yeah, I, I, I just think it's the sound of a. Uh, Kate Blanchett's voice. It's just has a lot of um, strength and the way they, they treat it in post as the utter otherworldly quality and, and sort of a, a peaceful voice, which is a nice contrast to all the violence we see on screen. And I do I do like all the domestic stuff we get in Hobbiton. Yes, no, I love that, it. That, it's, it well, and also it, it goes down to, because this is the other thing, uh, People who have, who have seen a beloved book turned into a movie, uh, at, at, you just kind of got used to the. Well, I don't know if you got used to it, but you kind of had you got to the point where you always accepted it to not have fidelity to the source material. And one thing this movie uh, does, which I've seen many movies do it since, is just include a little thing that kind of proves, oh yes, we did read the book and we did pay attention when uh, when Bilbo's speaking at his uh, at his 111st birthday dinner and is talking about all the distant relatives there and you know and the Tooks and the proud and the proud foots and that guy from the back of the room screams that's proud feet right off the page and once once i saw that on the screen i'm like oh okay well i don't have to worry they did their research on that proud feet gag the way that shot is staged is lifted directly from the bakshi film well what else are you gonna do but show the but show the literal feet sure it's just something that bakshi has famously complained about these films saying they're more about selling sneakers which i don't know what the hell he's talking about well, I mean, um, there was there was a lot of product tie-ins, merchandise, but yeah. that that seems to be like the people who made this film clearly wanted to make a quality film. It's just a side effect of franchising that there was so much merchandise. The void of those uh, Frodo Lay's potato chips taste delicious. <laughs> they tasted like proud feet. Oh, Olestra, that's what you're tasting. Uh, proud colon, I suppose. Um, <laughs> So you look, and uh, I like that it takes a while to get started. I think we've already touched on that. The uh, the fireworks show is a nice bit of an upmanship. We do get some physical comedy, I think, to kind of keep the audience from getting too bored. Gandalf smacks his head on the ceiling of uh, Bilbo's home. We get um, Gandalf grabs Pippin and Merry by the ears and sort of scolds them for setting off the fireworks a bit early. <laughs> it's it's a gentle introduction, a prelude, you know, of what's to come. But when, when uh, they, they start leaving, it's just Frodo and Samwise. But later on, they bump into Pippin and Mary stealing vegetables from, farmer, uh, from the farmer. And you never see the farmer in a home improvement-like <laughs> touch. You just see the, you hear the voice... And you see his, uh, you know, his rake or whatever, his his utensils high above the grass. It's called, called a pitchfork, I believe. <laughs> there you go. Yes, pitchfork. It's a bit different from a rake, is it not? Very much so. And uh, and this, the suggestion of the farmer, I think, is, is pretty neat. And I love that throughout the film, and all the films, in fact, if the hobbits have a chance to sit down, Sam Watts... Gamgee's going to start up a fire and start cooking some food. 
Yeah, I do. I do rather like that. There's that there's a lot of talk of food in this movie, but we're not overburdened with descriptions of meals. Right, but they they throw in a lot of throwaway lines, referencing stuff discussed in more detail in the book, like second breakfast and elevenses and elevenses, or there's the great gag towards uh, the end of the film where they're they're getting stuff from the elves, and it's the lumpus bread. Uh, you know, a, a small piece can feed you for a uh, can satisfy you for a full day, and then I think Pippin says like. Mary and Pippin were talking. Mary's like, how much did you have? And Pippin says, I had four. And then he burps. <laughs> That's what I would have done. <laughs> yeah, just nice, nice character moments um, that we get. But they, they don't get, they get into a, what I think, uh, is it Fan? No, it's not Fangorn Forest. Um, they get into the woods outside of Hobbiton, and we see the Black Riders, who, whose look is very much inspired by how they looked in the Ralph Bakshi animated film. Well, it's it's taken off the page, though, because they're just like dark, it is, it is. things with gnarled but, crowns riding terrifying horses. Yep. Um, and speaking of which, this is the first time we get to see. What do you think of the... <coughs> what it looks like when Frodo puts on the ring? That, at, at first, it was very jarring, but I thought it was a really nice touch to show the power of the ring that not only does it become invisible but when he puts on the ring he can see things other people can see namely this sort of windy blasted hellscape and he can see the true form of the black riders as, as the as the ancient cursed kings uh, and i like this they I never ne- they yeah. never like really explain this it's just a neat bit of magic uh that exists in the film one thing that dis- uh, surprises me uh, I, I read this in some review I read years ago. I can't remember by who. Um, is they said it could have been more interesting had when Frodo put on the ring, it wasn't crazy from the get go. Like, what if when he put on the ring at first, it was sort of nice and peaceful, and then it progressively gets more psychedelic the more he uses it. Uh, I could I could see that to show kind of a kind of a a a, a slow a slow corruption. <laughs> And, and yet the the ring the ring is a thing of evil. I don't think it's capable of subtlety. Sure, and you don't quite get what is so. Um, like he can turn invisible, yes, and it looks crazy, but I don't know if they quite sell the addiction of the ring that much. Well, it hasn't really had a t- chance to set in in this film. Right, right. You get you get the idea that it's dangerous because. Frodo tries to get it, give it to Gandalf. He's like, oh, why don't you take it? Um, and so on. Um, speaking of which, what do you think of the wizard battle business? Because that's not really in the book. Oh, with uh, uh, between Gandalf, Gandalf and Saruman? And Saruman, yeah. I, I like it because we, we, we get to see Christopher Lee. Uh, you know, we get to see them going back and forth. I guess it's... But it is, it is kind of... It is kind of meandery because uh, what's well, one 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 feature of Gandalf in every Tolkien work he appears in is he'll show up and then he'll leave and you just got to wait for him to show up again um, yep. and I guess on the one on the one hand uh, showing what he's doing after he disappears that does make it seem worth it that he's vanished from the party because uh, now we do get a sense oh yeah he's actually out in the world doing things there's a reason why he's absent and yet at the same time <coughs> The things he does while he's absent don't really have that big of an impact on this film. You know, his rivalry with Sauron's not gonna not gonna pay off until later. 
Sure. And also, I mean, there's a functional reason for making Gandalf disappear is that, well, if Gandalf is with you, he can just cast a magic spell and solve all your problems. And yet, can he? Because, as, as has been suggested, and in fact, there was an article in Dragon Magazine back in the 80s that spelled this out. We never get the, like we never really get the sense that Gandalf's magic is all that powerful. Like in D and D terms, he's a fifth level wizard based simply on the magic you see him use in Lord of the Rings, and that's hmm. not very high. Interesting. Um, although it could, although it could argue, maybe he does have reality breaking power, but he's wise enough never to use it. He he prefers the subtle magics. The film certainly picks up when they get to the Prancing Pony at Bree to ostensibly meet with Gandalf, but Gandalf hasn't been there in months. Oh, and that's also where we get Peter Jackson's uh, cameo. Yes, as a carrot-munching um, villager. <laughs> it's it's a nice touch. Like it's it's obviously, of course, I knew I knew him going into this, so it's obviously him. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of a nice touch. I, I do I I like it when directors kind of slip themselves into their own movies uh, subtly. It's nice when they do it without dialogue. Yeah, it doesn't oh, yeah. draw focus to itself. So you, um, I like how how threatening they make the prancing pony looks, and and the line from Mary or Pippin, I forget which one, is like, "Oh, it comes in pints." I think is very funny. Oh yeah. They talk about the beer. And uh, you get the idea, they're trying to go as under an alias, but of course um, their identity gets revealed, and you get sort of the fake out, oh no, they're being killed by the writers. Oh wait, they put pillows, and are actually sleeping in Aragorn's room. <laughs> it's a nice bit of business. There's the grisly bit. It's not gory, but it's still, you know, disturbing that the, the writers knock down the door and squish the... Uh, the man at the door as they break in at night to try and um, get the, the rain from the hot. Well, it's kind of, it's one of those, it's one of those slapstick deaths that, that Peter Jackson was known for at the time. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of him working, working out some of the, some of the things that aren't gonna, that, that he doesn't, that he's not really going to need for this trilogy, but are still part of his system. Right. Things that might be more appropriate in the Hobbit, perhaps. Um, and so now when uh, when Aragorn joins the party, the movie starts to, to move along a bit, and we get um, some character moments of them building a fire, training them how to fight a little bit, and um, having uh, the, a pretty good fight scene with the ringwraiths at, uh, at their campsite. But it's not just the campsite, it's also the location from The Hobbit where Gandalf turned the uh, giants into stone. Yes, and and I believe well, not the giants, the trolls, and I believe trolls, yeah. uh, I believe you can see troll-shaped boulders uh, in the background. You can even uh, yes, it's it's pretty subtle. You have to if you're watching it at home, you can just pause and look at it. And there are different designs than what they ended up using in the Hobbit film years later, but um, that that that's right out of the book, and it's a nice callback for fans. Yeah, and and that's uh, one thing that is nice is I. There's, there's, is fan service in this trilogy, but it's not big, blatant fan service. Also, a lot of the throwaway lines of dialogues are chapters of the book, or names of the chapters. Oh, yes. With Gandalf saying, Riddles in the Dock, talking about the Gollum story. Uh, which I think, I guess we should touch on that. 
Very briefly, you see a scene from The Hobbit reenacted with Ian Holm, where they they uh, tried to de-age him a bit and have him wearing a wig, um, getting the ring in the first place. It's str- strangely enough, the the did the the combination of makeup and I presume digital effects that de-age him work well enough. I think the fact that it's dark helps, but the wig is clearly a wig. <laughs> I'm a bit surprised, uh, you know, talking about George Lucasine stuff, that they didn't go back and cut in footage from the Hobbit movie. I'm I'm rather glad they didn't. Really? Okay. Well, well um, I mean, it, I'm not that I'm not big on continuity to begin with, but you know, one could argue that the scene you're seeing is a scene recalled from memory. Also, I can accept that they filmed a fragment of this scene in the in 2000. And then later refilmed a whole new scene in a whole new movie over a decade later. I'm fine with that. I can accept the reality of the way movies are made. That reminds me of a quick story that I'll, I'll go into and then we'll jump back to Lord of the Rings. Wow, we've almost said an hour. That's fantastic. This will be a um, long episode, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, go and change your dungarees, listeners. I don't know why I assume my listeners are four. Um, this isn't a good show for four-year-olds if you know who to talk to you can get adult-sized dungarees and rompers dear god um okay so right now i i i don't know the uh the publisher but they they were doing back to the future comics uh probably probably idw that sounds like them uh could be and the guy who i think is writing some of the comics be sort of the story editor he approves the pitches for the issues is Bob Gale, who was one of the co-writers of the original trilogy, along with Bob Zemeckis. And he says one of the stories he got pitched is a explanation of um, why two different... why uh, uh, Marty McFly's girlfriend looks different in the first and second movie. Really? Because it's... And the reason why is because it's different actresses. And Bob Gale shot that down. He's like, people that watch Back to the Future aren't idiots. They understand we cast a different actress in the part. There's no reason to explain that. <laughs> but part of me kind of wishes they would, just because, and I, from what I can tell, the, the comic does a lot of time travel nuttiness, which makes it very interesting. Well, I mean, the thing, the thing is, like, we, we don't need uh, an, an explanation for that, and yet, uh, sometimes you can get a fun scene, or even an interesting story out of, out of addressing that inconsistency. It's why I love the Marvel What If comics so much. Well, it's it, well, it's like remember the Ghost, the real Ghostbusters animated series, how the Janine character yeah, was yeah. constantly being redesigned. Yes, and there was um, executive reasons for that, but sure. But there, there is an episode. There's a late an episode that came late in the series that explained uh, the constant character redesigns. Oh, that's funny. I bet you that was one of the ones J. Michael Straczynski worked it, it on. It probably was, uh, yeah. and and you know, there, and it's it's interesting. Those touches can be interesting, uh, but anyway, back back to uh, back to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so I mean, this um, I like how you mentioned Fellowship of the Ring as a whole is is lower stakes, but specifically, I think this this fight scene is the best one in the film with um, the four hobbits and Aragorn versus the Ring Wraiths. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's very, a real battle with real stakes. Uh, it's a real battle. There's not too many people in it. It doesn't look like a football match. Also, the choreography doesn't look too fancy. I mean, it does. It, it feels like people yeah, sure, in a pre-industrial right. world who aren't trained in formal fighting styles hacking at each other with swords. 
Well, when you say too fancy, do you mean like it's not like Hong Kong influence with people doing backflips? Yeah, over overly choreographed. Yeah. And and keep I see. and you know keep keep in mind, I believe was it was it um the the Musketeer had that that come out before? <laughs> uh, yeah, before it was around the... the same time. Certainly, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, was before. But yeah, the the Matrix wire foo, uh, if you will, fight scenes were very much in vogue at the time. And the fight scenes in Fellowship of the Ring, and in fact, the whole trilogy are more uh, classically shot. Um, it's it's just a good, intimate fight scene. It's not cut too quickly. You get plenty of long shots so you can follow the choreography. They, it feels like it exists in a real space. Um, I'm surprised we haven't even mentioned this, but the, the music by Howard Shore is fantastic. Yeah, it, it sounds like the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Yeah, and he was a big fan of the books himself. So um, that's great. Even though he had creative differences with Peter Jackson, had to drop out of scoring King Kong, he came back for the Hobbit films, which was nice. But it, the the two Hobbiton theme is very pastoral. When the Black Riders show up, you have this over the top la, 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 sort of chorus stuff with the heavy or, or, orchestras, but more in tune than an example I just gave. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's it just yeah, it's, it's it's intense and it's appropriately weighty. You could argue it's bombastic, but I think it works for the sort of a story. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't call it I wouldn't call it bombastic. I like a film score is really only bombastic when it when it overshadows the film that it's in. But I, I think Very the good. movie works in sync with the images wonderfully. Fantastic. Um, I say fantastic a lot, don't I? So after this, we get you know during the battle, um, Frodo gets uh, injured by a. <clears throat> By a blade, and he the poison starts to spread through his body, and we get Liv Tyler as Arwen. And because she's an elf and is on a magic Elvis horse, she can whisk him away. Which I like <laughs> that the hobbits kind of complain about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's that it's too convenient to have elven magic involved. Well, that is too convenient. It's like, wait a second. That's our friend. Why are you taking him? Who's this lady? It, Who's this broad taking our friend? And also, we're still here in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right. Um, it's a nice fit. Uh, and when they go to Elrond, I mean, what a great realization of like a, a fancy Elvish capital. It's, um, the, the design of, of how they make the different areas in these films look, uh, distinct from each other is, is extraordinarily well done. They had actual armor made for people to wear. Um, uh, the, the, the weapons were made specifically to look different based on the character it's, it's just uh, such great attention to detail now although when, when they're in, in the elven town though that that is does have one of the scenes that doesn't work for me uh what scene is that so the scene the scene where frodo uh suggests to arwen that maybe she can keep the ring and she gives her whole speech about being a queen of like terrible power um that it's just too much. Why does she put on a laser light show while making the case for why she shouldn't have the ring? That's later in the film, though, and you're talking about not um, Arwen, but um, oh, I'm sorry, no, Galad no, Galadriel, Galadriel, my mistake, my mistake. The, the yeah, the the scene where Galadriel gives that speech. That's the one part of this movie that really doesn't work for me. Uh, it just seems like it's it is trying way too hard. Well, we we can talk about that and then sort of jump back to the Moria stuff. But yeah, um, I think with Galadriel. Um, there's a scene in the extended version that surprisingly is not in the theatrical version that's critical to the plot in which she gives 
sort of special items to the different characters that then pay off in later scenes. Hmm. Like, like Samwise's magic rope, and um, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, actually, yes. Now, now that you mention it, yes, I do. And that that's not in the theatrical cut. And the, it makes the later films make not that much sense. Where Sam has this really strong rope he pulls out of his pocket, and you're like, "Well, where did he get that?" You know, they, they never. Uh... Well, I wonder. I wonder if it's just like one of those things where they felt like, "Well, th- this inventory check stops the movie dead, regardless of what it sets up for later." And it does, but it's a nice, it's a nice moment. Like, uh, you know, the other hobbits get these swords, and Sam they give a rope, and he says, "Well, this is awfully nice, but I'd like one of the those shiny." Sh- shiny swords as well yeah. and Gladiro laughs and then doesn't give him a sword um, but yeah so we, we get a lot of exposition at um, the, the the elvish capital the name's escaping me but, but we get the uh, the fellowship is formed hilariously on the extended version it's split up into two discs and the, the midpoint comes after Elrond says the titular line we have formed the fellowship of the ring <laughs> And then it stops, and it's like, oh, that's appropriate. Uh, oh, one one cast member we didn't talk about, Sean Bean, is Boromir. What do you think about him? He does he does well. Mm-hmm. Like he... it, it makes you sad um, when he doesn't make it, but he does have a flashback that um, is in the extended version of uh, one of the later films. Yeah, I mean, it's like you he he's he's good enough that you really care when he dies. And I think he makes a compelling argument for why he could use they could use the rain as as a way to bolster their forces and make a strike back at Sauron. But he, yeah. he, his argument he, he's not a sniveling bad guy. He's just uh, conflicted and greedy. And then by the time he realizes the errors of his way, it's too late. Mm. Um, so even not too late. You know, the film is kind of long. But what do you think about the whole Moria sequence? This is probably <laughs> the the biggest sort of action beats in the film from the uh, Cthulhu Lovecraftian monster outside the gates to the uh, uh, Balrog and the, the orc sort of hoarding them from all over the place. I mean, overall, I like it. It's cre- it's creepy. It's scary. You know, things could go wrong at any minute. The one thing that I really liked, though, is I liked that they kept the uh, the magical the magical door where, you know, where it's like such like this simple, beautiful puzzle. Oh, what does that inscription say? Oh, well, it says, speak, friend, and enter. Oh well, how do the how how do we enter? Hey, what's the dwarf word for friend? Oh, it's this, and the door opens. I I love that. I love I love a puzzle that like exists for a reason and pays off. Not just that, but you have Gandalf. He's he's struggling beforehand, and he's like, "Well, I've really got it this time," and he still fails to get it open. And he's he's doing magic blast at the door. Yeah. <laughs> Everything he can think of the um. You know, it, uh, Peter Jackson does goose this film up with more action than the books have, but I think you, you need it for that kind of blockbuster film they're making. And the the design of this creature with the tentacles, I could have used more of this fight scene. It was pretty clever, people getting snatched up by the tentacles. It, it feels very video gamey, but I don't think in a bad way. I don't know. I don't. I the 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 lurk the 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 lurker out in uh, out in front of the the mines. I don't. That's kind of dead weight. I'd rather I'd rather have that cut out and then just so that you could get to being stalked by the orcs inside uh, Moria. The way the um, I think the troll looks, 
it's almost exactly the same as the troll design in the first Harry Potter film, so much so that it's disturbing, and I don't know why the, the design looks, if it's just a coincidence, why they look so similar. But um, it even plays out a bit kind of the same way with them fighting in close quarters. I'm, I'm going to disagree. The, the troll that appears in Harry Potter are very different. Uh, and it, like bo- body type, yes, very similar, but the head completely different. Different eyes, different nose, mm-hmm. different ears, different head shape. It, it is the classic sort of Dungeons and Dragons style fight we see where different people are using their different skills to fight the troll. <clears throat> Shooting the arrows at it and running around and so forth. Um we never mentioned uh, Orlando Bloom as Legolas, who I could take or leave. I don't think he's that great an actor. I I think I think he does well in the part. I I guess my my feelings of Legolas in later films have kind of tainted my opinion of him in uh, in uh, Fellowship. He definitely has less of a personality than Gimli. Well, he um, he does well because he he starts with with a, a little bit of personality and some nice skills, but by the by the end of this trilogy, he has no personality and he is only a collection of expertise. Right. In some interview, Orlando Bloom jokes in the Lord of the Rings film, all he did as Orlando was run to the top of hills, point to the distance, and say. They're taking the hobbits to Isengard. We must go there. <laughs> he, they give him more to do in the Hobbit, but that's a whole separate story. Um, so the Mines of Moria, I, I love the Balrog. The way it looks, it's it's how I imagined it from reading the books. It's it's I, appropriately I think they, demonic. That it has a, weight. To yes, it. looks like the classic devil figure. I, I think they could have made that beat go on a bit longer, though. It seems a bit quick. I don't know with everything with all the other action that takes place that takes place in Moria. I think that might be overkill to linger on the Balrog mm. fight. Um, the effects in this movie hold up pretty well, but I think there's some not great compositing going on. Where it's an overhead shot of the Fellowship running through Moria, and they're composited on, I believe, uh, if it's not a CG environment, it might just be the what they call bigatures, you know, sort of big miniature sets, and, and that looks a bit fakey where they're going up and down the steps and looping around i think i think that might have been uh that might have been a miniature okay um there i I don't think that effect worked very well but i think on a whole these effects hold up good i I, I will say so much uh, improvement was done in cg effects from a fellowship to return of the king we'll sort of see the effects improve as the movies go on um, but specifically, what's lacking is fine detail of how the shadows interplay with the CG elements. Well, you know, something I do like, I like of that this film doesn't go too overboard with the CGI, but also the effect shots are a wonderful blending of, of CGI trickery uh, and compositing and forced perspective. Oh that, yeah, that a lot of force perspective. Really well. Sure. I mean, like a lot, a lot of the shots w- with people talk, communicating with the, with the hobbits, it was just uh, Elijah Wood, like six feet away <laughs> the, from the person that they're talking to, but they're maintaining these eye lines that make it look like they're making eye contact. But I, I do want to stress again: they did use um, little people. As doubles in a lot of the lawn shots. Very true. To also get that effect. Uh, but you're right. They also did a lot of in-camera tricks, which is useful. Um, 
when when Gandalf appears to die, it's an emotional moment. But I love that they have to keep on moving because they're in a dangerous location. They're trying to get to the other end to continue their journey to take the ring to Mount Doom and uh, throw it in the fire. It's, it's, take it it's, from whence it came. It's it's rather nice. There's no like falling to your knees, screaming no, and lingering over a body uh, in what should be a dangerous situation. It feels more dangerous because they do press on in the face of that tragedy. They don't have time to mourn. Right. Um, after that, they meet the Wood Elves, which I, we already sort of um, touched on. I, I do like, uh, they look in the, I believe it's the Palantir, is that it, that they have? Or no, is that the Palantir, is that what Sauerman has? I think that's, I, I believe that that is the Palantir. Okay, and uh, they look in one, and we get a vision of uh, the Shire on fire, and, you know, what will happen if they don't get rid of the rain. Um that is a direct call out to something that happens in the Return of the King book that I wish was in the film. In which uh, they go to Hobbiton, you think everything's okay, and instead it's sort of like this hellish nightmare. Oh, it's like the, the sacking of the Shire, I think it was called. The, yes, the, the sacking of the Shire. Yeah, there, there were, especially in the second film, there were lots of comments about why we didn't get to see that. Um, and and supposedly that was they did film a full sacking of the Shire sequence uh, later on. That's terrible. I mean that that is almost the whole point of the story is that little people you know don't judge a book by its cover and to make it very pedantic. But in that Return of the King already has like twenty seven different endings. You could certainly <laughs> slice some of that down. And and if they would have ended with the that sacking of the Shire beat, I think it would have uh, paid off rather well. Um, it, it's it's puzzling, but we get a taste of what that might have been in that the brief sort of ten second sequence. Um, and then we get the the final sort of fight scene is in the woods against a lot of orcs, and not only that, we learn in one of the many sort of somewhat goofy scenes with Sauron that orcs actually are used to be elves that have been corrupted. And he has a sort of a, a breed of super orcs called the Urukai. Oh, and I, I love I love that when we see the Urukai, like they're like ripped out of these fleshy calls that are buried yep. underneath the ground. That is such a striking scene. I love that. Not just that, but the you know someone dips their hand in paint and then places it on their head. So you get the sort of uh, looks like the Native American war paint a bit. It's a it's just. Well, it clearly you get, marks you get, them out. Uh, makes right, an easy and, spot in the scene. Yep, and without spending too much time on it, they just set up that these are bad dudes and these are the next people that they're going to fight. Which is why they get kind of taken by surprise in a way. They sort of get creamed in this final fight. It's not necessarily victorious. And I'm going to say, I like, the, I like the orc designs. I like that they don't look like your traditional fantasy orc, which is that kind of green skin look that was popularized by uh, by Games Workshop in the 80s and has kind of infiltrated and, and all corners yeah. of pop culture since then. You're right. Um, instead, it's more earth tones. Um, I especially like the, some of them have like the, the hook noses. Nice jagged teeth. Jagged teeth. And it, it makes all the difference that it's actors in prosthetics. I think with the exception of the really large one, which might have been CG or CG enhanced. Um, it makes the fight scenes feel more real and less cartoony. In uh, one of the commentaries for uh, one of the Hobbit films, Peter Jackson claims he wishes they would have been CG all along. 
which I, I find uh, ludicrous. Yeah, I disagree with that. I strongly disagree with that. Uh, but yeah, they're, they, they, they do have some dialogue. There's some dark humor, especially in the later films, that maybe is a little bit over the top. How sweet, fresh meat. Um, but they, they, they look gross. They look like bad guys. And you're right, they're not the, the neon green skin. Um, they don't develop the bad guys uh, other than Saruman very well, but it's enough that you get the idea these are bad guys. And uh, the scene, uh, seeing the, the party work together, and especially seeing what happens to Boromir, um, I find the moment where Boromir, you know, sort of, he tries to steal the rain from Frodo, and then he realizes what he has done, I think is a very emotional moment that works, and it could have not worked. Hmm. No, I mean, his, 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 his betrayal and realization, uh, I think, is communicated pretty well. Not only that, the way Boromir goes down being stuck by a lot of arrows, uh, I feel is a direct <laughs> reference to Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. It's it's a wonderfully grisly death. It is, and you feel uh, conflicted, because this guy has, has been a dick for most of the movie. And, um... <coughs> excuse me, that we get a scene of him later is pretty nice. Uh, in the the Two Towers extended version, I think we get a flashback scene with him, so it's fun to see him again. But it's a shame he couldn't go with them on the quest. But he's um, it's useful uh, from a plot, from a writing standpoint, to kill off characters because it it ups the stakes. You don't know, you know, who could go get knocked off next. Um, speaking of good character moments, what do you think about Frodo? He tells Aragorn that you know he's going to leave by himself. He doesn't want to put everyone else in danger. And Aragorn says, I would have fought with you to the end. And as Frodo goes off, Samwise uh, runs in the lake after him, despite the fact that he can't swim, and then he starts to drown. I think I, th- I think that that really does say a lot about the friendship that's, that grows between, between uh, Frodo and Sam. That, you know, Sam... Sam feels that he needs to be at his friend's side. He doesn't even think of himself for a second, putting himself in, in, in danger of drowning. And then yet I like that at that point, Frodo does now realize the weight of the responsibility he's been given and does not, on the, on the one hand, you know, a, a burden shared is a, is a burden lifted. But I, I think there is something honorable, if, if dangerous, about deciding that he's just going to have to shol- shoulder this burden alone and he doesn't want any, anyone else threatened by it. Right, it also sets up how in the next films, you know, the party is split up until the very end, and they each have their own different adventures, which causes its own sets of problems with the movies. But it's, um, I, I know people that went to see this movie that didn't realize it was a series, and they think, that's where it ends, really? <laughs> and and when they marketed it, it was Lord of the Rings in big letters, Fellowship of the Ring in small letters. They did not do a good job of saying, like, the first in a trilogy, um... Despite the fact all three films were shot back to back to back to save money, and um, also in New Zealand, the the U.S. dollar was drawn against the New Zealand dollar, so they basically got three New Zealand dollars for every one American dollar. I think I, I think that's it because like I I didn't mind because it does just end, and I think I didn't mind yeah. that one because <laughs> I knew the source material and also because I knew it was being filmed back to back, and we were going to get the other two movies. But not everybody has that same familiarity, uh, so I can, uh, to an extent, I can understand people being being really disappointed and confused <laughs> when the film just stops and the credits roll. Could it have ended at a better point? 
Um, you know, I've I've given I've given that a lot of thought, and I'm I am at not sure that it could. If I were trying to end it somewhere different, I might end it after Galadriel gives the Fellowship their items and sends them on their way. Hmm. That could work because I guess getting the items could be kind of like a victory lap, right? And after uh, a tent scene, they do, although Gandalf, you know, has ostensibly died. They they get armed. Uh, they get sort of their rest and relaxation, and get sent on their way. And then that way, the second film would open with this fight in the woods. But I mean, there's so much that happens in in the uh, the next two books compared to the first book that um, there's a lot of weight they have to pull. So, um, what do you recommend, Fellowship of the Ring? Yes, I do. I'm giving I'm giving this a pretty firm sequel. Yes. I give the sequel yes. This is my favorite of the trilogy, even though it's mainly exposition. The the Hobbiton sequences and the Mines of Moria. It, there's a lot of iconic scenes from this film. Um, it didn't inspire as many memes as the Two Towers, but that's all right. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Uh, it's. Uh, I also like that they don't focus on uh, Gollum that much in this book. Yeah, Go- Gollum. In, in I like. I like that they that they they save the big Gollum stuff for later on because Gollum Gollum does end up becoming the standout star of this uh, of this trilogy. Uh, one thing they did change in the um, I think in the extended versions is in Fellowship, you briefly get a wide shot where you can see Gollum in the corner, and he does not look like he does in the later films, and they later fix that. Yeah, it's just this creepy, this creepy skinny shadow. Hmm. So that that is one sort of thing where they George Lucas did, but I think they they <laughs> want that consistency. It's like, wait, why does this creature look totally different in the second movie? Um. And yeah, I, I this they they were, they were so easy for them to screw this up, and that they didn't. I mean, you gotta love that. Like the first one of the earliest trailers for Fellowship of the Ring. Was just the wide shot of the the company just walking, oh, and you yeah. get to see uh, the dwarf with the axe, the elf with the bow and arrow, the wizard the with the big hat, wizard with the big hat. I mean, it just was. That's all you need to do, really. It was kind of the perfect teaser. Yeah, and that's the because like you know, the Ralph, the Ralph Bakshi adaptation just ends and promises a sequel, and we never got it. I was so thrilled to find to know that this was being three movies filmed back to back, so we were guaranteed to get the whole trilogy. And this movie was a risk, believe it or not. Oh, oh yeah, and it was by far their most expensive film. Um, they had just released a fantasy film, Dungeons and Dragons, which was a, a flop. Oh, oh, uh, yes. although a much lower budget one at that, but um. But more weigh-ins in that one. Yes. A weigh-in that was out of his mind, having just come off the set of Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> That's another story for another day. Um, how are we going to do pitch a sequel for this? This is so odd. I, I'm not sure if that is if that is you know strictly strictly possible. But you know what? Let's let's do it like a Marvel's What If. Let's let's intentionally okay. pitch a sequel and try to make it different. Uh, try to change the direction of the story in a very different way. All right. Um, can I start? Yes. Go right ahead. Fantastic. So, the way this ends, you know, the the band is uh, is all split up. You you're not quite sure what's going to happen with the ring, and um, I would make it focus on uh, be sort of a a, a stealth a suspense movie focusing on Gollum about uh, Gollum trying to track down 
um, since I can do whatever I want with the plot, really, um, <laughs> Gollum would track down and murder the other members of the Fellowship. Ooh. And it would end with only Frodo and Samwise being left. And so imagine Friday the 13th, by the way, of Gollum. Oh, it's Gollum is the slasher? As the slasher is Jason Voorhees. Uh, and yet a slasher in a fantasy setting, which we don't really see too often. And it would be extremely uh, gory kills, because Peter Jackson likes that sort of thing. Um, you also would um, make it a bit of suspense. You know, people would start blaming each other, thinking that, oh, uh, you know, maybe Legolas would be one of the first to go. And then they, they pin it on Gimli. And so it becomes a bit like a 12 Angry Men scenario where people are arguing and bickering, which is part of Gollum's plan. Uh, we also get some... Um, uh, to, to further the, the Friday the 13th parallels, we'll have a scene where Gollum goes to a cave and starts weeping. And what he has there is the, the, the corpse of his childhood friend, which he killed. Ooh. So it'd be very dark. It would be uh, a way to a, a film that basically just you know like a ten little Indians thing picks off the characters until we just have a few left for the the third film presumably. Oh, also in the uh, the NES video game adaptation, if you find Golem's old friend's sweater, Golem will attack you. <laughs> That's right. Those attacks do half damage. Um, I, I would call it the Lord of the Rings Golem Golem. Gollum, 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 Gollum. Or maybe my my precious, <laughs> precious tidings. <laughs> All right, well, an unexpected stabbing. <laughs> <laughs> Murders in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> They're taking the hobbits to Dysengard. Well, uh, so my pitch is sequel. It's gonna be it's gonna be an anthology film. So what ends oh, up happening okay. is that Frodo Frodo decides he cannot uh, he he can't carry the burden of the ring, but he's it's not sure much. anyone yeah. else in the Fellowship can either. So this new film it's a series of vignettes, and in every vignette Frodo tries to pass the ring on to someone someone else who he thinks would be a better ring bearer, uh, and then we and he interacts with uh, characters from all across Tolkien's writing. So of course we do see him pass the ring on to Tom Bombadil, <clears throat> uh, among others, uh, and. Each time he passes the ring on to one of them, uh, we see how they end up becoming corrupted by the ring and uh, and you know fucking it up. And in the in in the end, Frodo always has to take back the ring, either because they're stupid and they lose it, or he has to, in some cases, kill them to get the ring back. Uh, and we follow him through, I think maybe five stories of him trying to pass on the ring, each time failing, and finally, and always ending in disaster. And finally, at the end, deciding, well, I guess. By default, I'm the only one who can carry this ring because every, I'm the only one who hasn't gone gone mad with corruption just by having it. And then from hmm. that point on, it continues with the rest of the trilogy. Assuming there are I more see, sequels. so it's a lot of side stories. Uh, it'll, and it'll, it'll be called uh, it'll be called Lord of the Rings Ring Theory. Not Lord of the Rings. If you like it, then you better put a ring on it. <laughs> No. Okay. That could make a good video. Hmm. And what the hell? Um, One of the people he tries to give the give the ring to is Sadako, from the ring. Why not? Sure, yeah. that makes sense. Um, 
Now we're moving on to what you're watching. Thrasher, what have you been watching? Well, uh, I have uh, tried to give uh, video games another shot. So I have been playing Mass Effect Andromeda. Ah, um, and, and what do you think of it? That's a controversial game in the series. Yeah, I, okay, so I, I, I did enjoy the original Mass Effect trilogy. Uh, I'm, I am enjoying Mass Effect Andromeda, but it's not a great game. At least it hasn't revealed itself to be a great game with what I've, what I've played so far. I think I'm about three, four hours in. Um, it, it, certainly, it certainly has its flaws. I suppose I'm enjoying it more like I enjoy a good old tattered sweater more than I would say enjoy a game. It it's plays very well, and it's just nice to be in, in this world again, hopping around a galaxy doing stuff. It's very what do you feel? Yeah, what do you feel about all of the vehicle stuff? The the, ve- the vehicle stuff, not good. Yeah, you know, uh, my wife, Havana, is one of the biggest fans of the series. She's played through the trilogy, I think, five times. Cool. She's considering doing it a sixth time for some reason. And she always plays and makes the same decisions every time. But she just loves that universe so much. And Andromeda, um, she said it's like they took all the things people complained about from the earlier games and doubled down on them. I can totally buy that, yeah. And I don't know if it's because of too long of a development period or if they they thought... Um, uh, another person, um, a, a guy that works at a local game store, said it's like they 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 took the exploration elements of Dragon Age Inquisition and kind of smashed it into Mass Effect. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. And um, and, and because of its uh, disappointing sales, I don't want to say the game is a flop because I don't think that's true. It's not getting any single player DLC. Huh? Well, well, that's. That would explain that might. Yeah, I wonder if they were expecting it to flop because it doesn't have the gaps that are usually filled by downloadable content. Uh, oh, if they send it off to die, that's interesting. I don't know. Um, the I, I've heard that the parts of the ending are a bit abrupt, and then she said like, "Oh, did I miss something?" And I was like, "Nope, that was the ending." So. What we get for the next Mass Effect, I don't know. Um, I do know Bioware has planned out the plots for Dragon Age 4 and 5. Hmm. And Dragon Age 4 is an active development. Um, could you play... Um, what Did you play Dragon Age, or what do you think of that compared to Mass Effect? Uh, yes, I played Dragon Age 2 uh, and about uh, and Inquisition. I Overall, I prefer Mass Effect, although that's in part because I tend to prefer science fiction to fantasy. But hmm. Dragon Age was a very... A very, a very good, mostly traditional uh, Western fantasy type game. Mass Effect Two, in particular, might be one of the best games we've ever played. Yeah, I think I, I, I uh, it's funny. I was talking to my wife last night about the Mass Effect uh, games, and I kind of like my personal ranking. I felt Mass Effect Two was the best, uh, followed by Mass Effect Three, uh, followed by the original Mass Effect, uh, and. I guess I guess this is where this is where I am. I like the story of the original Mass Effect more than yeah, I like the yeah. story in Mass Effect Andromeda, but I find Mass Effect Andromeda more playable than the original Mass Effect. Right, the original Mass Effect has dodgy frame rates, and um, but uh, the the main villain of the original Mass Effect I think is the best villain of the series. He's just such an asshole from day one. He pins this like. Uh, planetary disaster on you oh the elusive man 
No, uh, in Mass Effect One, it's um, I don't even remember his name. Oh, oh I'm sorry. No, no, uh, Saren, the Rogue Spectre. Saren, yes. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the trilogy overall. I was uh, thrown off. Yeah, uh, Elusive Man is, is mm, interesting, but uh, whatever. Um, this is a long conversation. Okay. Um, I watched a movie. Uh, streaming on uh, Netflix in the United States. I've been wanting to see it for a while, and I think I built myself up to it too much. It sort of let me down. It was The Founder, um, starring Michael Keaton. Oh. Uh, it's a biopic on Roy Kroc, the the guy that made McDonald's uh, super corporate and bought it out from the McDonald brothers. Um, one of the McDonald brothers is played by the actor that plays Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, but he has a 50s sort of, um, not a buzz cut, but it's like the sides are shaped. It's like a, a cropped haircut and no mustache, so he, he's almost unrecognizable. That mustache really adds a lot to his face. And um, I, I thought this was going to be, like, the trailers made it highlighted the comedic moments. This is more of like a business movie. There's a major subplot involving powdered milkshakes. Um it's it's kind of dry. I, I think it, it's a bit predictable. It makes me want to read a book about the real guy, so I guess it's successful in that part. And Michael Keaton has a fun time playing a character that has an arc of initially being a down-on-his-luck milkshake machine salesman. Huh. And towards the end, he's sort of this conniving um, asshole who uh, ended up with great success. And uh, I think one of my favorite parts is at the end, they show pictures of the real people compared to how they looked in the movie. <coughs> and in some cases, how they sounded. So, it, um, I don't know if I'd recommend it, but there's so few movies about fast food business out there. It might make an interesting <laughs> double feature with Fast Food Nation. Um, interesting. Which is, a flaw, which is a flawed look at fast food uh, manufacturing. I think the one thing I think that's interesting is uh, the the powdered milkshake subplot to expand upon that. They talk about how can they increase cost and increase uh, cost. Be- oh, not in- sorry, decrease cost. Oh, okay, I was confused for a moment. <laughs> right, and uh, a, a big cost was having these full refrigeration units with real ice cream to make milkshakes. And um, one of the franchise owners learns through Restaurant Magazine or something, learns of a powdered milkshake that has uh, emulsifiers, thickeners, and some powdered milk in there that, you know, requires no refrigeration. It's very easy to make. It's instant. And McDonald's used that for years, and it saved them a lot of money. But more importantly, the way McDonald, the way Roy Kroc became uh, wealthy um, is that he started a company to buy the land upon which the restaurants were on. Hmm. So if you're in it, I think it still works this way today, but if you're a franchisee owner, you're paying rent to the McDonald's land corporation. Oh, wow. For the, and that's, and, and you multiply that by the moines of McDonald's and that's where the real money is made. And so if that kind of stuff interests you, you'll like the founder. If not, you might find it one of the most boring movies ever. Um, I found it mildly interesting. I can't... If you like Michael Keaton, you know, give it a shot. It's good acting. You have to be in the right mood for it. I thought it would be more like Wall Street, a bit more juicy, and it felt like they pulled their punches a bit. 
I gotta, I gotta say, I, I am interested in this film, although I don't know if it's going to be at the top of my to watch list. Right. Um, it was a film that was delayed by a few years too. I thought initially they were thinking it would get Oscar nominations, and it did not. Um, I believe it was filmed around Savannah, Georgia. Like it's not the most showy movie either. It's a lot of subtle performances. Uh, Michael Douglas portrays Ray, Roy Kroc as having a, a nasally sort of voice who's constantly uh, needling the McDonald brothers on the phone. Hmm. Come on, we can boost profits by having a powdered uh, strawberry milkshake. I think you'll love this flavor, fellas. So, there you go. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Follow us uh, uh, next week in which we talk about Lord of the Rings, the two hours also check out our patreon where can they find that patreon matt patreon.com slash sequelcast two is that the number two or the word two number two glad we got that spelled out now yep one last bit of business the the willy wonka trilogy okay it's, so of yeah. course we we all know the uh 1971 willy wonka and the chocolate factory of course. And of course, we all also know that there is the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from 2005 uh, by Tim Burton. But what makes this a trilogy and something we may just have to co- cover, though it may drive us mad, and this just came out uh, to, to much ire, is Tom and Jerry colon Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's an animated remake of the 1971 movie but inside a Tom and Jerry movie. And I believe they use even some of the musical numbers from the 1970s film. Yes, they do. A lot uh, of that is, is kept intact. Certainly the uh, look of the animated Willy Wonka looks much like Gene Wilder. He, he also and, looks um, as the, like the animated Willy Wonka that showed up in a lot of uh, advertisements, because there is a real Wonka brand now. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got I, wonder... I think of... How, how was was somebody in danger of losing the rights to that movie, and so this had to be made to secure a copyright? I mean, they have to go through the Dowell Estate, who isn't, you know, aside from some cartoons they did with the BBC in the '80s, they've kept a pretty tight rein on the on that. And I, I do think it's strange we've never had a movie of Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, one of the few sequels that Roald Dahl wrote. Which is a really fun book. I'm shocked that it's never been adapted. Especially the the Johnny Depp Willy Wonka, which I don't like very much, uh, made a lot of money. Very successful. Maybe they couldn't design a fancy enough hat for the sequel, so he had to turn it down. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd love to see those grape-looking aliens. Yeah, it, the vermicious canids. Vermicious canids, yeah. Which adds some weird, some weird world building to the Oopaloopas. Right, I barely remember reading the book as a child, but I remember even as a child thinking that was strange. Um, not to mention the the joke from the book, "These snozberries taste like snozberries," is a penis <laughs> joke. Oh uh, yeah. That, that, that'd be fun to do at some other point. It, it works um, on all levels. It really does. Yep. Um, okay, so next time we'll be talking about Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Uh, write a review on iTunes and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or through whatever uh, podcast listening software 
you like to listen to. <laughs> and uh, if you have a few dollars would like to make recurring monthly donations, uh, donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash sequelcast2. That's the number two. All right. Uh, so for Sequelcast, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. Well, what about second breakfast? Sequelcast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. Find other great film and TV podcasts at battleshipretention.com. The theme song to Sequelcast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at markwiththesea.com. You can also listen to Sequelcast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequelcast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. 